All right, let's take our Bibles, turn to the book of James, James chapter 1 tonight. And thank you for being with us, and it's wonderful to sing a few songs together with you and to hear you singing out to the Lord. I'm thankful that the Lord has given us hope, and we have hope in Him. I want to talk to you tonight about whose fault it is, who it is to blame anyway. I don't know if you have this person living at your house, but at our house, there's somebody there, and his name is Mr. Nobody. Uh, When there is something that takes place or something that's out of the ordinary or something is out of its place, and we ask around to figure out who did it, often we find out that Mr. Nobody did it, and uh, it seems like it's nobody's fault. Anybody else have that person living at your house? What's really scary is if you're the only one living at your house and Mr. Nobody still lives at your house. And I know if you have children, you've probably experienced that. A Mr. Nobody living at your house. Or maybe at your house, or maybe this happens at work too at times, uh, you have the game that goes around called the blame game, right? It's not my fault, it's everybody or somebody else's fault. And there's always that person. We, of course, um, see uh, this happening in the political world a lot. It's somebody else's fault for the problem that I'm in today. And if I had just had a better situation, things wouldn't have happened this way. People make excuses in their life on these lines as well. You know, somebody else did something to me, therefore that's the way I am, the way I am, and I can't help it. It is who I am. And uh, so we often play the blame game. Shandy and I were reading a book on marriage recently, and in that book, the author made the point, he said, the biggest problem in your marriage is your sin, not your spouse's sin, even though it's often easy to point out the struggles of somebody else. In fact, Jesus spoke to this same uh, theme when he said in Matthew 7 and verse 3, And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? And we need to understand who holds the blame for sin and temptation and struggle in our lives if we're going to be able to deal with the problem. You know, ultimately, that's why I think the blame game gets played, is if it's somebody else's fault, then it's their responsibility to take care of it. If it's my fault, if it's my mess, then I have to take care of it. And so it would be a lot easier if I could, in some way or another, pin the blame on someone else. And here as we're talking about real-life theology, taking God's truth and just applying it to where we live, I think this subject of understanding who is to blame in our temptation and in our struggle can be very helpful if we're going to deal with that. Because the reality is this, and I think we would all agree to this, whether you play the Mr. Nobody game or the blame game or any of those other games, I think we'd all have to agree at the end of the day that we all face temptation of some kind or another. Now, the thing that is tempting to you may be different than the thing that is tempting to me. Uh, You might walk in and, and one person might see all of the black licorice jelly beans and say, that's so tempting. Someone else may say, that looks awful. I wouldn't want to eat those at all. Uh, somebody may walk in and see all of the ice cream and say, I'm really tempted by that. Somebody say, I don't like ice cream at all. We may be tempted by different things, 
But the truth that I think we can all agree on tonight is that we all face temptation. And James here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has a lot to tell us about when in this issue of temptation. Let's pick up in James chapter 1, verse 13. The Bible says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Boy, that's a place that sometimes blame gets placed for temptation, right? I mean, first of all, let's think about this theologically, since we're talking about real-world theology. If God's really God, if He's in control of things, then wouldn't it be theologically proper to say that it's God's fault when I'm tempted? Well, this is the error that James is working to correct in the people's thinking because that would be an easy, um, easy place to point our finger, right? And he's very clear. He says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. And then he gives us a reason. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. And this is where it gets very challenging for us here in James chapter 1 because all of that finger pointing, have you ever heard somebody say, you know, when you're pointing a finger at somebody else, there's actually three or four fingers pointing back at you. You ever heard somebody say that? Well, here's where all of a sudden we realize where the finger is pointing. He says, but every man is tempted. And I know, ladies, we're going to have to include you in this as well. Every man or woman is tempted, but men, we know this to be true of ourselves, don't we? Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, it bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren, every Good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from above, is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. If we're going to deal with temptation and live in truth and live in righteousness as a Christian ought to live, then we need to understand who is to blame in my temptation, where does it come from, and then the scripture will teach us how we deal with the temptation. What is the source of temptation? What are the steps of temptation? And then what is the solution to temptation? Those will be the three things we'll focus on tonight. Let's begin by looking at the source of temptation. Here in James 1, we are very clearly admonished that the source of temptation is not God. It is not God. God cannot be tempted with evil, he says, and God does not tempt us with evil. God does test us, but He doesn't tempt us. God does test us, but He doesn't tempt us. He doesn't tempt us with evil when that sinful thing is held out in front of you that's not God trying to entice you in with evil things but God does allow challenges in our life that bring about testing instead he says the source of temptation comes from where it's not from without I can't say well the devil made me do it or God God is God is tempting me right now no where does it come from he says it comes from within. It comes from within. 
Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his, if you underline in your Bible, underline those next words, own lust. It's your own fleshly desire. Now, where does this lust come from? Well, the scripture tells us that we are all born in sin. In, sin. in fact, uh, in, in Psalm 51, David said this in verse 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, when we see a new baby born, we always think, oh, what an innocent child, what a beautiful little baby. And according to Scripture, though, even though that may be a beautiful, innocent child, they have a sin nature. That child has a sin nature. In sin, he said, I was conceived, I was shapen in iniquity. Now, biblically speaking, where does that sin nature come from? Well, it didn't come from God because God didn't create mankind with a sin nature. When God made Adam and Eve in the garden, the Bible says he looked at them and he said, it was very good. It was very good. But Adam and Eve chose to sin, which we'll talk about in a moment here a little bit later in our text. They chose to sin, and when they chose to sin, the Bible teaches us then that every person born since then was born in sin. In the book of Romans, it says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So our sin nature comes from, yep, can't just blame it on uh, somebody else. It actually comes from our parents. We inherit it from them. Now, if you want to be really accurate, men, this is painful, but it actually comes from our fathers. Uh, and ladies, it comes from your dad. So biblically, theologically, if you want to be very precise, ladies aren't passing on the sin nature. I don't know, but the Lord teaches this, that it comes through the fathers. And I don't know, if you lived at my house, you'd probably understand why that's true. Um, because uh, it, it is the way God has said that it is. So the source of temptation, it's not God. Rather, it is from within. It's our own evil desires. I want you to think about a couple of Old Testament examples of those who succumb to their own evil desires. Think about King David, the man after God's own heart, the king of Israel, the king that God used in a tremendous way with his people. And yet, King David, one night when he should be out with his soldiers, with his men, instead he was on his castle rooftop walking around and he looked over at the next place over and he sees Bathsheba bathing there on her rooftop. And instead of looking away, no, he had lust in his heart, right? He continued to look upon her. And then what took place next? He then invited her to come over. He started acting upon that lust. And little by little by little, we saw lust. It conceived, it brought forth sin. And then we saw that it brought forth ultimately death because that child that Bathsheba had ended up losing its life. We see the example of David. We also see the example of Achan. Remember Achan in the Old Testament, the children of Israel were going into the promised land. They had just seen God split the Jordan River and they walked through on dry ground. 
Then after marching around the city of Jericho over a period of seven days, a total of 13 times, they saw the walls fall down flat. And then Achan ran in along with all the rest of the people, but he took some for himself. He took a little bit of gold, a little bit of silver. He took some clothing. And the Bible tells us he buried them in a pit under his tent. He saw those things. The desire of his heart was to have them. Who knows what his thinking was? Perhaps it was, well, I've been walking around in the wilderness for 40 years. It sure would be nice to have some new clothes. Maybe he thought, well, we've been eating manna and quail. It sure be nice to have some money so I could purchase some nicer things. Our tent is getting worn out. We don't know what all went through his mind, but we know that Achan chose to sin. We could go on literally listing out every person who's ever lived, and ultimately when we see sin and we examine our own sin, we realize that our sin comes when we choose ourselves to go against God. The source of temptation is not from without, it's from within. Now, are there places we go where we find things that are more tempting to us? Sure. But why are they tempting to us? It's because of the sin nature that's inside of us, right? Why are those certain things that people would look at or people would desire to do? Why do those things have such an allure? It's not because they have so much strength in and of themselves. It's because of our own sinful desires. It's who we are as sinful people, the source of temptation. But let's look next at the steps of temptation. Verse 14, every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, bringeth forth sin, sin when it is finished, bringeth forth death. I think it's an important point to make that it's not a sin to be tempted, but it's a sin to act upon the temptation. It's a sin. David didn't sin, per se, when he was on his rooftop. David didn't sin when he was walking around just looking at the sights. But when David paused to linger and to gaze upon Bathsheba and continue to lust after in his heart, David sinned at that point. Achan didn't sin by coming into the city of Jericho. He didn't sin by picking up the Babylonian garment and the gold and silver because, in fact, they were supposed to gather all of that. But what was he supposed to do with it? He was supposed to give it to the Lord. He sinned instead when he chose to keep it, when he acted upon that thing that, was, that he was tempted by. When he acted upon his sinful desire, that's when it became sin. We all have a desire to sin. This morning we heard about the penalty of sin and the power of sin. This morning we were reminded that it will only be when we reach heaven someday that we no longer have to face the presence of sin in our lives. So we still have this presence of sin around us and, yes, even inside of us. Inside of us. There is still the desire that comes from within, our own lust. But then in verse 15, we see lust conceiving and bringing forth sin. He's using the illustration of like a child being born, right? That this lust that was inside gives birth. And what does it bring forth? It brings forth sin. 
Sin is anything I think, anything I say, or anything I do that breaks God's law. Often we think of the sins of commission, the things that we commit and do that are wrong. And yet, I believe many times the struggle for us comes through the sin of omission, those things that we don't do that God has commanded us to do. So we see a choice to sin. And then the last part of verse 15, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. There's always a consequence to sin. Somebody said once that sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. I have found in my life that in all kinds of decisions, it's very common that I will try to weigh the consequences of that decision before I make it. And I think that's a wise thing to do. I think we should think about the ramifications of the choices that we make. But something I've found to be true is that you and I can know, can, cannot fully comprehend the consequences of sin, no more than we can fully comprehend the consequences of doing what is right. But we think we know and we kind of judge it. Well, nobody's going to know or nobody will find out. It won't hurt if I do this. And we try to think through the consequences of sin before. But, but really, we're just trying to convince ourselves that we were okay in doing what we wanted to do in the first place. You see the process. That's lust and then conceiving, bringing forth sin. And, and we often live somewhere in the middle there thinking, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's just a lust that I have. Or we think, well, it's just a little sin. Nobody's really going to notice. And yet James is so clear. The consequence, sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now I'm thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from sin, all sin, that gives us forgiveness, that gives us hope of eternal life and salvation in heaven. But I do think it's important to note here in James 1, he's not writing to the unbeliever. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to believers here. There is a consequence for sin. It's like the picture of, of milk that is left out. And that milk is fine at first, but you know what's inside of that milk? The potential to go bad. It's already in there. And left out over enough time, what happens? It starts to rot. Those little germs uh, begin to multiply. The bacteria begins to divide and to grow. And before long, the whole thing stinks. The whole thing stinks. There is a consequence to sin. I think it's very important for us to understand then, because of this consequence of sin, that we not be deceived by those things that are around us. He uses the word here when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. That's like being invited in. It's going to be good. It's going to be great. It won't be that bad. The book of Proverbs talks a lot about the foolish man or the simple man being enticed in. Come with us. It'll be great. Come and share all that we have, only to find out later that you've lost everything because you've thrown in your lot with those who would sin. The steps of temptation, it begins with a desire. So I would challenge you about this in your own life. 
if you have those things that you find yourself struggling with sinful desires, the desire to do something you shouldn't do or the desire to not do something uh, that you really should be doing, then understand you need to be working at that level to deal with it at that point. Now, sadly, many let it go further than that. They've already chosen to sin. They're living with the consequences of sin, and they feel like, what's my hope? Well, your hope is Jesus. But just because you haven't chosen to sin doesn't mean that you don't have a challenge, doesn't mean that you don't have something that you need to be focused upon. We all have a sinful heart. The heart, the Bible says, is desperately wicked. It's deceitful. The scripture says, who can know it? If you follow your heart, it will lead you into sin because your heart's deceitful. It entices you. It comes from your own lust. That's from within. So we must understand there's a desire to sin. If you've made the choice to sin, if you've made the choice to go the wrong way, then the scripture says it very clearly in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So all hope is not lost if you have made the choice to sin. Rather, there is great hope, but that hope is in Jesus, not to continue in sin. And I would encourage you with this too, even if in your life you find yourself facing the consequences of sin. Understand, God doesn't always just remove consequences just because, oh, now I'm sorry. In the same way as our uh, Brother Downs was talking about this morning, how he had to get to a place where he realized, I'm not just sorry I was caught. No, I'm sorry for what I did. And even with being sorry for those things, he still had to face the consequences of his choice. God doesn't promise to remove the consequence of sin in this life, but God does promise us forgiveness for the sin. So we've seen the source of temptation. It's from within. It's my sin. It's not yours. It's not God making me sin or well, if God had just wanted to, He could have kept me from it. No, it's my own sin. The steps of temptation starts with a desire, moves to a choice, and then we see the consequence of sin. And I want you to see, thirdly here, the solution. The solution to temptation. He corrects bad thinking when some might think, well, God tempted me with evil. He says, no, no. Verse 16. Do not err, do not err, my beloved brethren. Don't make that mistake to try to blame God or somebody else for the temptation in your life. And he reminds us instead where or, or what God gives to us. Look at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. I like that word that's described there when he says no variableness. No variableness. I remember when I got into about the eighth grade and all of a sudden we had to solve math problems that had variables. Remember variables? Eighth, ninth grade, algebra, algebra two. And you're thinking, how 
how can we figure this out? Well, if this is true and that's true, and, and you notice like if one variable changes, what does that do to all of the rest of the variables? Then they have to change along with it. And so you're solving these equations with variables. The scripture says that we serve a God with whom is no variableness. In other words, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He piles on even further. Neither shadow of turning. There's not even a little shade of variableness. There's not even a slight bit of change in our God. You know, it's pretty incredible to think about. God is never stressed out. God never has faced something where he said, what am I going to do now? God's not sitting up in heaven going, boy, I hope this all works out right. He's not tightening up his belt and holding on tight. You've never seen the whites of God's knuckles or the whites of his eyes. He is perfectly calm and in control of all things. Does he, does he express anger towards sin? Yes. And, and wrath towards those things? Yes. But God doesn't get flustered by the situations that he's in. No, because with him there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. You know, temptation is something that introduces a new variable into our life, isn't it? it it's, it's this new thing that all of a sudden I need to decide what to do with this. Think about Adam and Eve, right? There they are in the Garden of Eden and they're able to live in perfect harmony with nature and with each other. What a wonderful place to live. And then what happens? Satan comes along as Eve is already there, by the way, looking at that fruit, and he begins to tempt her about the fruit. But did the temptation just come from the serpent, or, or was Eve already dealing with something as she looked at it and she saw it and she said it was desirous to, be, to make one wise? So she looked and she saw and she, she agreed with Satan and his temptation that he brought to her and, he, and she sinned and then Adam sinned as well. When that fruit was there, it was like a new variable, a new opportunity, something I haven't really thought about this before. I haven't dealt with this before. What do I do in this situation? Temptations often feel like that, don't they? A variable. Something I'm not prepared to deal with right now. Something I haven't thought about. It can often look like this. My life is going well. Things seem to be working out. And then all of a sudden, somebody cuts you off in traffic. Well, there's a new variable that you hadn't considered before. Perhaps you weren't prepared for it. And, and if you're not prepared for it, what can be the natural response? Anger, frustration, road rage. Yeah, we see it in our city. How sad. We look around at people and say, what's wrong with people? Why can't they just get along? Well, it's because we all live, we live in a fallen world where they're constantly being introduced to new variables, new opportunities, new struggles. And because of the lust that's inside all of us, because of the sin that is resident in our flesh, when those new opportunities to sin come, what do we often find ourselves struggling with? By being led down that path of temptation, the desire 
the choice and then the consequence of sin. So what is our solution? Well, we know that the variableness doesn't come from God. God is faithful. God never changes. Notice in verse 18, he says, Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. So we've been born, as a believer, if we're a Christian, we've been born again by the word of truth. So there's new birth, new birth that comes through the word of truth. Jesus Christ is the word made flesh. And as we take the word of God that was spoken to us and was demonstrated to us by Jesus Christ, the word in human flesh, we have new birth. So what's the solution to temptation? Well, the first step is new birth. It's salvation in Jesus Christ. But then he says that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures or of his creation that people would see in us the transformation or as he says here the first fruits the fruit that is born out from the word of truth i just wrote it this way spiritual growth comes through the word of truth so new birth or salvation comes through the word of truth spiritual growth comes through the word of truth i quoted the verses this morning psalm 119 verse 9 wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way is by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Here he's talking about sin and bringing death. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Well, that ties directly back into our passage here in James chapter 1. So how do we deal with temptation? What's the solution? We need the new birth that comes through Jesus Christ. We need to continue to grow in the Word of God as our hearts and minds are filled with truth so that when those variables that this life will naturally throw in our way, when those variables are introduced, we will have the word of truth that comes from whom? comes from God. The God with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So when you have the word of God that comes from the God of the universe, who never changes, who's always the same, who always gives good and perfect gifts, then I can take the word and I know how to deal with every variable, with every temptation, with everything that this life will present me with. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We need the word of God to fill our hearts and minds. But even the Apostle Paul continued on with this thought when he said in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that it, when I have preached to others, I should be a castaway. He talks about taking every thought and bringing it into subjection, taking those thoughts 
captive, not letting empty thoughts fly through our mind or just jump out and react uh, physically to the various things that take place in life. No, rather to learn to be somebody whose mind is full of the Word of God, whose heart is in tune with the Word of God, and thereby the natural outgrowth of that, the first fruits, if you will, will be a life that is lived in line with the Word of God. And I think as we are born in the truth, as we walk in the truth, as we grow in the truth, we will find that in time we can develop spiritual consistency. Spiritual consistency comes from a healthy relationship with our always consistent Heavenly Father. Spiritual consistency. I don't know about you, but I don't want to have to live my whole life always going from happy to sad or from discouraged to rejoicing. I'd like to be able to follow what the Scripture says in Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Be careful for nothing, he says, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In Philippians 4 and verse number 8 it says this, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. And then he says, those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, those things do. And the God of peace shall be with you. So how do we overcome temptation? Well, it's through the new birth. It's through spiritual growth in the Word of God. And then it's through walking with Him day by day, which brings consistency in our life. Why? Because He's consistent. He never deviates from the right path. So if you're on the path with the one who never deviates from the right path, then what does that say about you? It says you're on the right path as well. I want to read to you uh, a portion of the psalm that David wrote when he was confronted about his sin with Bathsheba. The scripture tells us that Nathan the prophet came and, and he called out David for David's sin. And so this is David's psalm of confession and contrition before the Lord. Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God. According to thy loving kindness. Here's a man who had been tempted. His lust had conceived. It brought forth sin. Sin, when it was finished, brought forth death. What did he do? He asked God for mercy. He said, According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. I love verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You know, sometimes we can get in life and feel like that temptation and then our action upon that temptation, the sin that we find ourselves in, just feels so sticky and all-consuming that there's no way out of it. No, there is. God can wash you. He can clean you up. 
He says, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. How do we deal with the sin? We have to acknowledge it, confess it. Can't pretend like it didn't exist or pretend like it was somebody else's fault. They, they made me do it. No, I chose to sin. And then he speaks about the person that he sinned against, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest. And be clear when thou judgest, behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Isn't that wonderful? It talks about in James 1 about our sin coming from within. But here David says that God desires that we would have truth in our inward parts. You know, if you just took the average person, and we don't have the spiritual eyes to see it, only God does. But if we took the average person and opened them up, what would we find in their heart? According to James 1, we would find lust. But according to Psalm 51, as we, as we fill ourselves with the truth of God's Word, that we ought to be able to open, be opened up and somebody with the eyes of God could look in and see the truth of God's Word. That was David's desire because it was God's desire for him. In thy hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. He says in verse 7 of Psalm 51, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from above, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Aren't you thankful that God does that? How about this one, verse 10? Because we know we have deceitful hearts. David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Ever find yourself in sin so deep or so far that you feel like you've lost it all? It's not even worth it to try. Uh, David had sinned in a great way. Not only he had committed adultery, he had also then conspired to have Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, he had conspired to have him killed. He had murdered the woman, the woman's husband. But he said, Lord, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit, blot out my transgressions, hide me not from thy presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. What does he say in verse 12? Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Oh, the joy of our salvation. Have you lost your joy of your salvation? It's easy to do if you found yourself in sin and succumbing to the constant temptations that, that prey upon us every day. But there's joy in serving Jesus. There's joy in our salvation to be reminded that our sins are forgiven. Uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. 
What great truth that as God does His work in us, as we confess our sin to Him, then we have the opportunity to share the goodness and the love and the grace and forgiveness of God with others. The devil loves to take the children of God and, and keep them so twisted up and focused on themselves and groveling about in their own sin that they don't ever take time to share the love of Christ with somebody else because they're so frustrated by their own sin. And God has provided the way of escape. He's provided the way of forgiveness, the way of hope and truth and eternal life that ought to give us such joy that we can't help but share the goodness of God with others. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. It's one of the reasons I love coming and singing to the Lord together with you. And I hope when you sing, you are singing to the Lord. Don't just sing so that everybody else can hear you or sing so they can't hear you. No, sing to the Lord because of what God has done in your life. He even asks God that God would help him to sing better. O oh Lord, open now my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice. What's he saying here? I mean, David had made many, many sacrifices. This is Old Testament. They were busily sacrificing lambs and all kinds of other creatures all the time. But he says, God, you don't desire sacrifice. Where's he going? He says, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. What are you talking about, David? This doesn't sound like good theology. It sounds like you're twisting God's word. Is he? No, no. Listen to his next verse. Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. David understood that the way to deal with his sin that had come because of his own fleshly desire and he'd been tempted and he had, he had acted upon that temptation. He chose to sin. He acknowledged that. My sin is ever before me. He recognized that he was the sinner. It wasn't Bathsheba's fault, even though he could have blamed her for it. No, David recognized, no, it's my sin. My fault. My sin is ever before me. He recognized his sin. He re re reached out to God, asking God for forgiveness. And he reminded us of this very important truth. God doesn't want just lots of outward show to prove that you're right with him. God wants you to have a right heart. He wants you to have a right heart. You know, it's It's easier in one sense to put on a good show than it is to actually have a right heart with God. It's easier from a human perspective, right? Because I can do a lot of stuff and nobody has to know what's going on inside. But think about that, really, because that's really backwards thinking, isn't it? That's a very me-centered, fleshly way of thinking. It's not my problem. I'm going to blame somebody else for my sin. It's not my fault. 
I mean, yeah, I did some, but if they hadn't done what they did, then I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing, right? And, and, and that's the blame game that we start to play. But if we start to, if we acknowledge our sin, if we confess it to God, isn't it actually in reality a lot easier to just admit your own sin and ask God to forgive you? Isn't that a whole lot faster than running around, making a bunch of sacrifices, doing a bunch of things, trying to keep up an appearance? You know, one of the hardest things to do is to live the Christian life when your heart's not in it, when your heart's not right with God. Oh, you ever try reading your Bible consistently when you have known unconfessed sin in your life? It's so hard. The Bible's either really boring or it's really convicting, and either way, you don't really want to read it. You find yourself distracted by so many other things and worries and cares. It's so hard. You know, it's impossible to live the Christian life in your own strength. But if we will go to our God and just confess our sin, admit our weakness and our need of Him, what does He promise to do? He'll give us the joy of our salvation. He'll give us a new song, even praise unto our God. He'll create in us a clean heart. Well, you can work really hard to try to clean yourself up on the outside. That takes lots of time and lots of effort. And sometimes you feel like, well, I've gone so far. It's going to take so long to get cleaned up. It's not even worth it. But God, when He steps in, He wipes away all tears. He, he forgives all sin. He does it in a moment, and it's an incredible way that He does it. What does He want from us? Not just outward sacrifice. No, He wants a contrite heart. So what's the solution to temptation? The solution is looking to the Lord, finding forgiveness in Him, walking with Him in, in newness of life and in joy that comes in serving Jesus. He doesn't promise that He'll take away every struggle. No, because we still live with our sin nature. But we don't have to live under the power of that sin nature anymore. We can live in the strength that comes from the Lord. But it starts with acknowledging, who does that blame belong to when I sin? That's the hard one, I think. It's easy to say it. It's a lot harder to acknowledge that and live it every day. Because it'd be a lot easier if I could just blame you for my problems and go on down the road. Because I'm perfect, and I don't have any problems, right? I heard somebody sing a silly song one day, kind of pointing out the foolishness of how we live with that mindset. The song said, I'm so great, and I'm so special, humble as I can be. I'm so great, and I'm so special, and I know that you want to be just like me, right? We live that way sometimes, don't we? But that's such a foolish way. That's such a me-centered way of living. Don't fall prey to the temptation to just live for yourself, to blame everybody else for your problems. No, acknowledge your sin, your own weakness, and your need of a Savior. I'm so thankful that God is there to care for us. You know, God keeps loving us, even though this is stuff, I look around the room tonight, I don't think any of you are hearing this for the first time. But God still loves us. And if we were honest, we'd probably all say, yeah, there was at least something I messed up. <laughs> something I said, something I thought, something I did, or something I didn't do. And yet God still loves us. We're His children. 
He's not looking for opportunities to just bonk you on the head just because he's a mean, angry God and looking for somebody to bonk. No, he loves us. Does he discipline us? Are there consequences? Yes, but he forgives. He's merciful and he's kind. Hope you'll look to him. I'm going to have a word of prayer and then I've just written a few questions for us to consider tonight. So I'd like you to divide up, find a a group of ladies or a group of men that you can join up with and uh, maybe work through a few of these questions together and maybe you'll have a little other discussion about the message tonight and then invite you to close in prayer. At about 6.15 or so, those of you who have, uh, have completed our starting point class and are, are here for our special reception tonight, we'll just slip over here in the next room, but there's about 20 25 minutes here for everybody to take a few moments to find some folks and, and discuss this. Find somebody to pray with and uh, maybe somebody to pray for that you can encourage in these ways. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your truth. I pray that you would take it and use it in our lives to first be honest about our sin, where it comes from, and then to really put a plan in place, a, a biblical understanding of how to deal with that sin so that we can live each day for you. Lord, confess, or we confess to you that we fail often and we ask you for forgiveness. Lord, we ask you for strength. Lord, give us the joy of our salvation in Jesus' name. I pray. Amen.